Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion with the various Facebook groups devoted to DNA and genealogy and my page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like my page and also join my Facebook group. Well, have you tested your DNA, or are you still thinking about it? Today's show will help answer some of the many questions I have been sent on DNA and genealogy, and I am happy that a new book is on the market to help you expand your knowledge of genetic genealogy. Now, this is not the first show on genetic genealogy, and many of you have tuned in to hear C.C. Moore and Shannon Christmas specifically focus on understanding autosomal DNA. Today, we're going back to basics with Emily D. Olivesino. Emily is a genealogist, and she's been a genealogist since 1970, and the Northwest Speaker and Regional Coordinator of the International Society of Genealogy. She has given presentations on genetic genealogy for a large variety of audiences, both nationally and internationally. She has also been interviewed for various television and newspapers and has had articles published in the United States and abroad. She remains current in her knowledge by attending genetic genealogy conferences yearly and runs several DNA projects. Emily's book, Genetic Genealogy, The Basic and Beyond, is hot off the press. So let me give a warm welcome to Emily Alessino to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you for having me. It's most kind. Well, I am so happy to have you. And my only burning question is, 
when and why did you decide to write this book? <laughs> well, basically there's two reasons. One, the field of genetic genealogy is rapidly changing, and there's not been a book since about 2005 on the subject. I felt we needed one. I tried convincing others to write it with no luck, and I decided to do so myself. I do presentations, and I find that when I do, not everyone tests immediately. Therefore, they forget some of the basics. And I always allow people to email me. So I have lots and lots of email, lots and lots of questions, and they may come weeks to months later, so the people don't always uh, remember what they heard. And I know that we are visual, visual learners, not auditory. Therefore, a book is really needed. And so basically, I wrote it in part for my self-preservation. Well, you know what? I'm one of those people who reached out to you a long time ago when yes. I was trying to make the decision as to who should I test. Should it be my brother or what? And what test should I take? So I, I know that you have certainly been one of those go-to individuals. Well, why don't you give us a brief history of genetic genealogy? Many people may not even understand when did we start testing our genetics for genealogy purposes. Okay. Um, actually, this I have a section, Chapter 1, in my book that covers uh, this subject a little more in length. But just to focus on the genetic genealogy portion, Family Tree DNA was the first company to establish commercial DNA testing for genealogists. After reading a paper authored by Michael Hammer and his uh, group on a Cohen study showing that the Y chromosome could indicate that two people are related, an entrepreneur and genealogist named Bennett Greenspan um, contacted Dr. Hammer, who is a population geneticist at the University of Arizona, to see if his relative in California and a man named Nitz in Argentina were related. And it took a while, several phone calls for um, Dr. Hammer to agree to test the two men, but he eventually did. And Dr. Hammer told Mr. Greenspan uh, that he keeps getting requests like this often, and I always wondered if it's not Mr. Greenspan we keep calling him. But um, uh, Mr. Hammer or Dr. Hammer said that someone should start a company in dealing with this because he was too busy and and had you know more scientific things to do. So Family Tree DNA was created by Bennett Greenspan in April 2000. And by June 2000, the first surname project was established by Doug Moma. In October 2000, Dr. Ann T. Turner conducted the first privately known mitochondria DNA study. At that point in time, um, in the 2000s, we just had very few markers to test. Other companies had similar ideas at this time, but they were not the first to offer the test to the public. A Brigham Young University started collecting DNA samples in March 2000, but the collected DNA was not transferred to the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation to be analyzed until 2003. In 1999, Brian Sykes established Oxford Ancestors, and this is in England, but it was not incorporated until 2002. So, um, Family Tree DNA does have the extension, uh, the extinction of being the first company. In October or November 2009, 23andMe um, offered autosomal DNA testing, which 
by now was a new field for genealogists. And in February 2010, Family Tree DNA also offered ATDNA. Um, Ancestry DNA offered their autosomal test in May of 2012. And Ancestry had already been doing Y and mitochondria tests um, that would be on the all-male or all-female lines, just as Family Tree DNA has done since the beginning. But uh, those right now seemingly aren't advertised much. I'm sure they still probably do them. However, since 2000, many companies have come and gone, but what remains uh, now is what's important. For genealogy, um, there's only three companies that seem to be the top contenders, and those are Family Tree DNA, 23andMe, and Ancestry DNA, although they do vary in their quality and purpose and do not provide the same types of tests. So in my opinion, people need to uh, research them and see which best fits them. Well, since you, you know, your book focuses on the basics and you have mentioned why and mitochondrial and autosomal, why don't you help people first understand the different DNA tests and then how do, re- do the results help us expand or confirm this our family tree? Okay. Um, well, first, I'll cover three major uh, tests. There are some smaller tests, but for the basic learner, they need to understand the difference between the three. Um, there are Y-DNA tests, which test the Y chromosome, uh, mitochondria DNA tests, which test the mitochondria, I'll explain a little later, and the autosomal DNA test. Now, each DNA test not only tests different portions of your genome, but it provides you with matches for different parts of your pedigree chart. Example, the Y chromosome test, only males can take it. Um, It's the top line of the pedigree chart or the patrilineal line, so it's the fathers, 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 all the way back to when mankind began as we know it today. I say it because, today because that line can, has moved and may keep moving further back. Um, anyway, the Y chromosome test provides uh, the tester, which has to be a male, a haplogroup, which is your twig on the world family tree. The world cannot use surnames, so they use a series of letters and numbers. And you must share the same twig on that world family tree in order to have a possibility of a recent match. The Y chromosome test also um, matches you from people who are recent to you, as recent as a brother or a father, back thousands of years ago, depending upon the number of locations on the Y chromosome that is tested. So if you only test about 12 uh, locations on the Y chromosome, your match is going to be way back. Uh, over 600 years ago. If you test 37 or 67 or 111, then the match is going to be much closer. The advantages and disadvantages of testing the Y are, well, first of all, adoptees, if they have a male they can test or they are a male, can find out their biological surname. The more matches you have with the same surname would indicate, and if they're close matches, would indicate that's probably your biological surname. It also can, like all DNA tests, correct your pedigree chart. Um, 
it can help you determine whether your records are correct or if in the past there has been a name change of some sort for some reason. And there are many reasons for those name changes. And everyone thinks adoption but or illegitimacy, but there are other reasons. Um, the Y chromosome test, it's linear. It just is on that one part of our pedigree chart, but it is a very easy test to use and to find matches. The mitochondria test, um, people get confused. They think of the X chromosome when, when people say mitochondria. The mitochondria is outside the nucleus where the Y and the autosome are inside the nucleus. This is a portion that... Um, can be tested, it, um, anyone can test, males or females. And you can match males or females. It covers the bottom line of the pedigree chart, the matrilineal, all females. So it would be the mother's, 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 mother, all the way back to whom we call mitochondrial Eve, the beginning of womankind as we know it today. Those matches, however, can be thousands of years ago because the mitochondria is very slow in mutating. Um, it does provide a haplogroup for you. If you take uh, the lowest uh, a test for mitochondria, it will give you a general haplogroup. If you take the full mitochondria, which means the entire um, portion of the mitochondria, then you'll get a more detailed haplogroup, again, which is your twig on the world family tree. But... The mitochondria is tougher to use as it mutates so slowly. Um, if you have a particular problem to solve and viable testers to help solve it, you can be very successful. People have. I'm going to give you, your listeners a website to check because there are wonderful um, success stories for all of these tests. And I'll do that now so I don't forget, but that is www.iss. I'm sorry, ISOGG, International Society of Genetic Genealogy.org. So www.isogg.org. There you can find a link to a lot of success stories, and I send people there for the mitochondria so you can see how it's been used to solve problems. It is the most difficult to use. The autosomal DNA, anyone can test, and anyone matches males or females. Now this test is really unique and much fun to use. It will give the tester matches anywhere from their 64 fourth great grandparents, which is back six generations. Now sometimes you can get matches much further back than six generations because you have cousins that marry cousins. Um, in, in particular, I have a, a sixth cousin who matches me quite well, and that's because my great-grandparents were cousins, and we, therefore I have more DNA in me from them than I would normally. So autosomal can also give you um, those matches on anywhere on your pedigree chart back that far. However, you won't match absolutely every cousin because we inherit it differently. But you can determine also 
what segments you inherited from which ancestors, and we find that very fascinating. It's through a process called chromosome mapping. So generally, um, those are the three types of tests and the advantages. Um, disadvantages only would include if you are concerned that you um, may not be who you think you are, that there mm-hmm. is some uh, name change on the line and maybe your surname or your lineage that you have isn't um, what you previously thought from genealogical records. But DNA testing is more accurate than the genealogical records. So as long as you know you go into testing with that idea, you can co- correct your paper trail. You can also prove or disprove family oral history. Um, and as a result, you get matches. So you have partners to share the research with each other. So and what you're saying, though, is that DNA does not lie? You mean oh, not it's at all. accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if the lab makes a mistake, they correct it, and that, those little things happen. But no, DNA, it, it's not man-made. So we know that uh, it is correct. <laughs> it, is, um, it is correct. Well, let me just continue with some basics. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you mentioned two things. You mentioned chromosome and you mm-hmm. mentioned segment size. So just explain to people well, how many chromosomes and then what are you talking about when you say segment size? Okay. Well, first of all, we have um, 23 pairs of chromosomes, and 22 of those pairs are autosomal, and that means um, they are in the autosome. The other pair is the sex chromosome. Now, we get, I say pairs, because we get one from mom and one from dad, and that they are called the same. So the the chromosomes that are numbered 1 to 22, there are a pair in each one of those. So there's a chromosome 1, it has two items, one from mom, one from dad. Now, with the, um, the segment size, a segment is actually a series of what we call SNPs, which is single nucleotide polymorphisms. Now, that can be very confusing to people, but just think of it in terms as a unique marker that um, mutates once in most cases. There are a few exceptions, but there's exceptions to everything. Anyway, a segment is a section that you match with someone else. And um, they're measured in what is called centimorgans, and that's all a, a measurement of how likely the DNA segment is to recombine from one generation to the next and be passed on. Now, let's back up a minute. Autosomal DNA and your body recombines during meiosis, which the layperson can think of it as being with every person conceived but it actually happens prior to conceptions. But it mixes and recombines. So I use the analogy of taking a deck of cards. If you separate the cards into the pile all red and a pile all black, now shuffle the cards. Then lay out two columns of equal length. There's going to be some red and some black. 
in each. But they're going to be different. There may be three reds together and one black and two reds. So it's going to be different. Each of those color sections, consider them as segments. And you have to match someone else on a particular length, a segment, a, a range, exactly. It's more complicated than that, but it, that is a good analogy. And again, this is all laid out in my book, too. So basically what you have, you know, I hate to get too complicated. A segment isn't based on a deck of cards like that. It's based on more the raw data and how you've inherited it from mom and dad. But the idea is you match someone else on a similar segment. That means you have um, the same marker, the same allele, we call it, and with that same allele, you have the same chemical base that is in our DNA. So there's a match for a certain length of time. Does that Okay, help? Emily, yes. Now, Emily, coming out of the chat, we have a question of which you're not clear about the 22 pairs of chromosomes that are autosomal and the okay. one pair that's sex-related. So would you go back over and explain again uh, what autosomal means? Okay, autosomal um, is in the nucleus of our body, and those are chromosomes. And there are actually 23 pairs. That means we have 46 chromosomes because they're in pairs. The first 22 are labeled, as you will see if you test on um, 23andMe or Family Tree DNA, they will be labeled chromosome 1, chromosome 2, and on down to 22. And you get one of those chromosomes from mom, one from dad. But they mix before they come to you. So segments or pieces of those chromosomes can be from mom and pieces can be from dad. Okay, and that's a biological mix that they do. The sex chromosome is the 23rd pair. And males get a Y chromosome from their dad and an X chromosome from their mom. And that's why one, one way it makes them male is to have the Y chromosome. Females receive an X chromosome from dad because he got it from mom, his mom, and um, an X chromosome from her mom. And those two X's for the females can recombine, but the male X does not recombine. Mm -hmm. So it's purely from the father, and we know that. Uh, or I'm sorry, from the mother. From the mother, I hope yes. that helped your, your blogger. Okay, did that help you? <laughs> <laughs> so the, another question is, so autosomal means random scattering of markers? This is still coming from the, the chat room. No, it's not a random scattering of markers. Um, it, autosomes are um, basically our, 20, our chromosomes. Um, let's see how you can... Um, it, what happens is at meiosis, the chromosome you got from mom and the chromosome you get from dad, let's say on chromosome 21, um, they come together and mix. Um, 
they spin around, spin around, and then they separate. And when they separate, each can have parts of the other. And those segments are what we look at when we do genetic testing. We want to find a person we match that has the same segment as we do. Mm-hmm. But the whole key is to remember that you have a pair of chromosomes for each of those numbers. So, I'm not sure. Right. So we have this pair of this, these 22 pairs of chromosomes, and then we have the, the 23rd chromosome, uh, which is gender-related. Yeah. Now, let's say, for example, we have a brother and a sister to test. Yeah. Why would or could a brother and sister end up with results that are different? And one, and the brother end up matching people that the sister does not match and vice versa. Okay, that's simple. Because the scrambling that happens, or we call it recombination, people, everyone inherits a different pieces of their parents' Um, autosomes differently. So the brother may inherit more of one section and therefore match other people where the sister did not inherit enough of that segment to match the same people. And there is a threshold with each company where you have to have a minimum so they can call it a match. They want to be certain so they have you know, their own personal thresholds. So if you consider that uh, autosomal DNA recombines and each person inherits their autosome from their parents a little different, in little different pieces and chunks, then it is extremely reasonable that some people will match people that another person would not. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, no, we're we're getting it. We're getting it. And so it's it's just important to understand though that you get in pieces. The brother and the sister are full brothers and sisters. It's just that because of whatever's happening, uh, recombination, they may match a little bit more than the other. But it yes. does not mean that they're not full brothers oh, and ab- sisters. Absolutely not. And during, with autosomal DNA, uh, remember I said you can go back to your 64 fourth great-grandparents, and, and theoretically if every descendant of them ma- uh, tested, you could match any of them. And that could be you know, thousands of people, so thank goodness not everybody has tested. But it is always possible that you won't match a third or fourth cousin or further back, but maybe another sibling or your parent or your grandparent will because of the amount that is inherited is too small to register on their threshold, at their scale. So that doesn't mean you're not related. It just means you did not inherit enough to call it a match. Because of For the instance, threshold issue. Yes, yes. yes. And, and um, you know, the, the segments break up, and they break up differently. So you never know until you test. I mean, I match some of my fourth cousins, but not all of my fourth cousins that I've tested. And but with what it sounds like, though, you're saying that because of that, you need to try to test as many people as you can oh, in your absolutely. family. Absolutely. Um, and, and, for instance, fourth cousins, you have a 50-50 chance of matching them. 
that's what the statistics tell us. Of course, there's always exceptions. And again, exceptions if you have uh, ancestors who married each other that are cousins. But uh, yeah, it um, basically what you need to do is test yourself, test um, at least second and third cousins. If you cannot test parents, that's fine. Some of our parents aren't living, but if you can, that can be helpful. But second and third cousins at least, and that way you start breaking up your pedigree chart into sections. And I'll give you an example. This may help. Okay. When I started this, I tested my first cousin. He's my paternal first cousin, Doug. And if I match someone and Doug matches the same person and the same chromosome for the same segment, all three of us match each other, and that's the most important thing to learn with this, that everybody has to match everybody. If that's the case, you have a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Now, if I match someone and Doug matches that same person and Doug and I match on the same piece, I know it's on my father's half of my pedigree chart. Well, I didn't want to stop there because that only broke it down in half. So I'm hunting through half of my pedigree back several generations. So I tested my first cousin once removed, Dan. He is my paternal grandmother's nephew. Now, if Dan and I match a third person and all three of us match, I know it's on my paternal grandmother's side. And I have only those lines to look at, for the mm-hmm. she, her husband, and further back. Now, if Doug and Dan and I match, it's still the same location because it's also Doug's grandmother. Okay? Okay. I think if your li- listeners hear that over a few times, and it's in my book also, uh, it'll make more sense. Because some of this stuff is difficult to listen to, but much better if you can read it. So the point being... You break up the pieces of your pedigree chart. And therefore, when you match a stranger and that stranger matches you and a cousin, you know where to start looking. Otherwise, you have to look everywhere. (laughs) So you can take the choice of waiting and hoping and seeing if you're going to compare lineages or test cousins and try to narrow the hunt. Now, too many people want to look at pedigree charts and say, oh, we don't have any surnames that match. How can we be a match? Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that way. On the Y chromosome, yes, you can follow the surname. On the mitochondria, you cannot because women change their names all the time. On the autosomal, on the autosomal, you cannot. And the reason you cannot is because you could be matching this person through one of their females who married someone that you're na- you don't recognize that surname, or vice versa. Yes. So when you, when you do the autosomal, you really, really, really need to do your pedigree chart back, but to also do the siblings of your direct line and even their children and grandchildren. The more pieces of information you have, on all that family, the easier it is to find a match and the, the common right. ancestor with your match. Okay. Now, I'm seeing a, a, a question coming out right now, and I'm going to take one question, 
and then we're going to take a break and come back and continue this discussion. So it's uh, area code 504 has a question. Area code 504, yes, you have a question or a comment? Hi, how are you? Good good afternoon. Good afternoon. You may have explained this, but I am trying to learn. I have like 20 to 25 people. We all match each other in some way. Does that mean anything? Does You're talking about an autosomal test? Right. Okay. Um, yes, it can, but there are other uh, pieces of information that you need to view, and that is how large is the segment piece, which okay. is called centimorgans. Right. If it's not very large, then your common ancestor could be way back before okay. genealogical time. Um, but the the primary thing is you must determine whether all those people match each other or who matches each other on the same chromosome and the same segment range. Okay. Now that segment range it can it doesn't have to start and stop exactly in the same places. Okay. But then I would say as a as a new person to all of this, you want to really begin with looking at centimorgans which is a measurement of segment. Okay. Um, some people think of it as length, but it's not. It's the quality of that segment. Okay. Um, you want to look at centimorgans that are above 10 okay. centimorgans. Some people want to go above 15. Some of us really dedicated crazy people, we go five centimorgans and up. Okay. So start with the large ones and okay. make sure they're on the same chromosome, they have the same segment and that it, they match each other. Okay. And then you have a common ancestor. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. Th- thank you, caller. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue this discussion. So, a quick break. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, well, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. 
You can also find the archive shows on my website, Jeannie B. Roots. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questioning, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. I will call out your area code, and you will be live on the show. Now, the first caller who calls in will receive a free copy of Emily's book. So the first caller. So I have a question, Emily, coming out of the chat, and you all have been listening to Emily, Emily Alexino, and she has been discussing her new book and the content of her book, Genetic Genealogy, The Basics and Beyond. Now, there's a question coming up out of the chat, what what does it mean when you match someone who is a 4.3 match according to a company Jed match and someone who is 4.9? Are they both four generations away? To be totally honest with you, Bernice, I have not used Jed match. It's out there. It is, uh, I know... It can be the only way you're going to see information from um, ancestry DNA's um, autosomal test, but I I could not answer that honestly. Okay. Now, each, each company offers the user an opportunity to connect with a DNA cousins. What information should you share and what? Well, as far as um, the information, you definitely have to look at the companies. They they run a little differently. Um, first of all, Family Tree DNA allows you to see the name of the match and the email and the um, segments, the chromosome segments. Now, that's for the autosomal, and, you know, for any of your tests, you can always find the... Um, name of the match and the email for from Family Tree DNA. From 23andMe, you have to request sharing. They only do autosomal testing, and you have to request to share genomes. If that request is accepted, then you can see where you match them on which segments, and you don't get their personal emails and you do not get their personal name unless that is what they're using for that particular site. You have to email them on that site. If you can exchange um, real names and emails, I would do so. The same issue is with Ancestry DNA. Um, First of all, you cannot see where you match on the chromosomes there. You have to upload your data to GEDmatch, and that's where you look at it. Um, again, you do not get the name or the personal email of your match unless they are using their name as part of the um, website at Ancestry.com and Ancestry DNA. But I would always try to ask for the personal email because people change their emails. I also suggest that you ask for their snail mail address. Uh, some people are reluctant, but once you get to know them, you might be able to exchange that information. Offer yours at least. The other thing is um, you do want to share your genealogy. Now, 
in most cases, it's not important to share um, information for living people because the matches are probably going to be beyond your parents or grandparents. Um, and if they aren't, you probably know who they are. But um, that's extremely important to do. And again, depending upon which test, that's what part of your pedigree you, you share. If it's the Y chromosome, then you're going to share the all-male line. And and remember that they could be on a brother on that all-male line. So you need to share all the males that are connected to that all-male line. Same thing with the mitochondria, all-female line. All females and males connected to that mitochondria is going to be important for your match. Autosomal, as I said before, you share your entire pedigree um, back at least six to maybe 12 generations because there may be some cousins that marry cousins, as well as all of the information you have that come down nearly to the present as far as their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, whatever. So those are important, important to share with your researcher as well as any proof you have and documentation I'm not a person that looks at people's trees and accepts what's there. Certainly, certainly. But you have some people who are actually afraid to share genome. What can you say to people about exactly what they're sharing to give them a better understanding of what happens and what's going from one person to another Mm-hmm. on, let's say, 23andMe, because it's already there on Family Tree DNA. Um, yes, um, and, and usually the reluctance we see, of course, is the people with 23andMe. Um, some will be happy to contact you, but they do not want to share genomes. Personally, there is absolutely no reason for you to share health genomes. And right. Uh, currently right now, 23andMe is... Um, being uh, in, is in conversation with the FDA, and therefore they cannot sell their health portion at this point in time. They did in the past, and, and those people who have already taken the test as of what, I believe it's November 20th of last year, um, do have uh, matches on that could see the health, but there is absolutely no reason. You want to share the basic genomes at 23andMe. Now, um, as far as doing that, the autosomal test does pinpoint to an individual person. You are unique. Um, even identical twins have some differences they're finding. But there's no health issues that are known to be in the um, ancestry portion of that test or the ancestry portion of any of the other companies. Of course, over time, that may change, and those companies will pull that particular marker. But usually, health issues are a combination of markers anyway, and um, unless it's something specific like Tay-Sachs or sickle cell anemia, it's a combination, and uh, a lot of what we learn through the health uh, marker results is a propensity to get that condition. If you have it at, at you know middle age or later, you already know you have it. But um, as far as the genealogy portion, you're not sharing raw data. And mm-hmm. even if you were, it, it would take some very good uh, 
person that knows genetics to figure out what your health issues are with the raw data um, because you'd have to look up every marker and you're talking 700,000 markers. Um, So what you're sharing is just your segments, your pieces where you match other people. And those don't give you information as far as health or anything, which is what most people are concerned about. Right. They're afraid they're kind of sharing their materials. <laughs> and, yes. And, and, and that's just not what's happening. Uh, now, there is a concern, though, and it's how do you deal with totally unexpected results? For example, <laughs> yes. oh, you, yes. you test and you... And you, all your life, you thought you were 100% European, and you get those results, and you start seeing that you have relatives of different ethnic groups. You start seeing that maybe you have a few segments that are different than what you expected. How do people react, and how could they react to what they're getting? Well, first of all, everybody is going to react differently. Um, I would say if you have not tested, you need to educate yourself at what possibilities are out there because not only the ethnic difference, um, you could end up with a different surname. Um, You could end up with not being related to someone you think you should be related to. So you have to look at all of those possibilities because DNA is truthful. Um, However, a lot of people get hung up on the ethnic populations and the the race issue. DNA has nothing to do with race. It has no idea what that is. Um, what happens is, you know, we've all come from what we know now at this point in time out of Africa. And as we moved out of Africa, um, we had to adapt to the environment. And that's how come our... Our features are different. Our skin color is different and whatever. It is very rare. I mean, not very rare. It's it's unique if you are 100% something these days. However, you're still going to show that you're 100% in some cases because um, the population geneticists can't at this time pinpoint everything. They can tell you if you have a certain percentage of Asian, African American, Native American, Eastern, Western European, and a few other groups, and we call these population groups. Um, However, with more people testing, they will be able to break that down even more and let you know that um, maybe this particular part of your line came from, um, let's say, Ireland as opposed to Great Britain or England. So all of that you have to look at as a moment in time because those percentages of what you are are going to change in time. Now, how do you deal with that? You have to understand that we are basically all of us are mixed in some way. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, it's, not a big deal. I mean, things happened in the past that are not of our control. Um, life was different then. People were surviving. And, um, you know, as far as even the African um, slave issues, every culture, every culture had slaves. So there's always going to be some intermixing. 
and again, uh, I, I think it's beautiful. I mean, why would you want to be a plain little flower when you can be <laughs> very colorful? Um, so just know going into testing what the possibilities are and accept you as who you are. That's as right. a beautiful that's, person. That's right. Well, let's go back for a second and talk about should test first. Should it be the male or the female? Or is there some some rhyme to who we test, female, elder, younger? Well, well, tell us. Okay. Well, first of all, <laughs> you want to test the people that may not be around long. Uh, so if you have a male in your family who could be the last of that male line, get them tested. Same with a female. If you have older generations that are, are testing, uh, that could test, um, you definitely want to get them to do the autosomal test at least. And the reason for that is, remember I said that if you test, it goes back at least six generations. So if your grandmother or your parents tested, it would go back six generations from them. Therefore, you would get more matches who are related to you but won't show up in your DNA because every generation more DNA falls away and you don't inherit it. So the older the generation or you know, previous generations are going to reach back further in time with matches. So that's always okay. a good thing. Always a good thing. So, so the most important thing right now, if we know of an elderly relative, that's mm-hmm. the person we should approach. And I'm going to ask you another question about that, but I do have a caller, and I'm going to call out that area code. Uh, caller, you're 504. You have a question or comment? And you're the first caller, by the way, so you get a free book. (laughs) Congratulations. Exactly. That's why I was really calling, not to get a free book, but to see um, if I could purchase it privately through her so she could get all the benefits. But I will accept a free book. How about that? That sounds great. Thank you, my dear. Okay. Well, send me an email with your address, and we'll get the book to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Okay, I, I did have another question to ask about the elderly. Now, how do you approach an older person to test? Because some are very reluctant to give it up. Oh, that's true. That's true. And I've found some who are very willing to test, but their um, child says no. <laughs> you know? So they're afraid it's some sort of scam, I'm sure. Um, uh On Chapter 6 of my book, it talks about convincing a person to test. Then there are a few steps that I can't cover all of them right now. But basically you want to do this. Uh, You you want to prepare first. Uh, So there is a list in there that shows you what to do before you even make a phone call to someone. And I suggest a phone call over an email or a letter if possible uh, because that personal touch um, is, is better. Uh, letters can get tossed away if, at the first reaction. So you want to you know, consider that. But to begin with, you want someone to test that you think is related to you. Therefore, you need to do some research on their lineage and see where it may connect with you. When you call them, you want to make sure that you're reaching them at a time that's convenient for them and make sure you have 
plenty of time, they have plenty of time to talk. One thing I caution genealogists about, and I've seen this in courthouses too many times, is don't be telling them all your war stories, you know. They don't want to hear everything about your genealogy. So mm-hmm. keep that part short. Um, but you want to approach them slowly and get to know them before you ever consider asking for DNA. A friend of mine, uh, her name is Georgia Kenny Bopp, who is an administrator also, she coined the phrase, and we all loved it, don't ask for DNA on the first date. <laughs> okay. And I, that is so true. Don't call somebody up and say, oh, I think we have a match. Can I get your DNA? No. You want to see if you can find the paper trail first. You want to ask if there is a genealogist in their family or anyone interested in genealogy. And you know, suggest this is a bit of a conundrum to you. You haven't found the answer, and you would like to try and find it through a paper trail. When you cannot, and maybe you've called back one or two times, always ask if you can call again. Always ask if you can contact other relatives that could be helpful, um, because one of them may test and not the guy you called. Um, so, Find out as much as you can about who you can contact within that family. If you find another genealogist, get them on your side. And I say get them on your side because not all genealogists agree that DNA is the way to go. They all do not know about it, so you have to educate them. Now, once you do present the fact that, well, we've tried very hard, we can't find the paper connection, I do know of one way that may work, and that is a DNA test. Consider that you will have to pay for it. Consider that you will have to explain to that person everything about it to mitigate their fears and their concerns. My book has a list of all those fears and concerns and um, what you can tell them. So basically it all boils down to that. Take it slow and easy. Now, if it's your third cousin and you know the guy or the the woman, you can say to them, look, you know I'm a fanatic about genealogy. Can you help me out here? So it just depends on if you're contacting a stranger or actually somebody you know. Right. And I can see it being very difficult to really approach a stranger and ask yes. for the DNA without having at least some some inkling that that person may be related to you or to have something on a tree. That's right. So some, you so have at least, some suspicion. Yeah, yeah some, I mean, there's something that's guiding you to, to make that request in the first place. Absolutely. But you need to show that possibility to them. And maybe you would say to them, oh, look, um, you know, here is your grandmother. Don't ever mention that you know who their father is, et cetera, or because that's too close to home. That can yeah. bother people. How would you find that information out? You know, it's a fearful thing about, you know, the world's information systems. So start back a generation or two and say, do you know who your great-grandparents were? And, and see if you can find connections that way. So, Or mm-hmm. somebody in your family who knows that. Right. But what about those people, okay, they've already tested and they have these results looking them in the face? What's a good way for them to organize their results? Now, with your why, uh, it, it seems like that one is pretty easy. 
But yes, when and you the have these, yeah, and the mitochondria. But you have these autosomal results. You're mm. matching up to mm. one thousand people. Right. How do you how do you make sense out of all of these people? <laughs> yeah. Well, my book covers that in chapter twelve, and it can be a little more extensive than what I'm going to tell you. That's um, there's simple ways actually, um, but this the book takes it to the beyond part. Um, you know, after you've tested yourself and your second cousin or third cousin, if you can, and you've collected all this data. You can download it from 23andMe and from Family Tree DNA and put it in an Excel program or some mm-hmm. other uh, spreadsheet program. It works in Open Office too. When you do that, you're going to have matches that are only like one, two, five centimorgans. Always keep the original copy, but make another copy and throw out any of those low centimorgans. Remember I said if you're a beginner, you know, maybe start with 7.7 or um, 10 and up. Throw out the rest. But again, you've got the original copy. You don't want to get rid of that. Then start sorting it and organizing it. Now there are two spreadsheets that you would do. One is your matches. And the match spreadsheet, each company does it a little differently. But you would um, you get the name the email if it's Family Tree DNA, um, and then you will get you know the relationship that they predict of cousinship, maybe second to fourth or something, and well as some notes. So that's one file, and then the other file is the segment data, and that will tell you how many SNPs, how many centimorgans, and what range you have there. But you can add to those. Uh, columns, and what I do is I always put down the emails every time I can. I make notes. I also have a column that says known ancestors, so if I figure out the common ancestor, I can list it. Okay. So actually it's use Excel, and I would um, throw out the little stuff and organize the big stuff, and then incorporate your cousin's matches. So you can see um, what segment your cousin's on and you're on, and it, do we match somebody else? And then when you see those matches all working together, contact that match, see if they match your cousin, and then work out with your pedigree chart. But Excel. Right. But the, the, there's always this crazy, this difficulty when you're looking for when that match is a female and you don't know the female's surname. Well, and you have all these people matching you, you can't figure yeah. out well what's her what you it, it boils down to it has to be a female, but not necessarily. No, but that not seems to be that that seems to be very difficult sometimes. It can be because of our naming patterns, and it definitely is for the mitochondria. But on the autosomal, yes, you can match on a female line. That's why you need to do your genealogy very wide and deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I also i I'll look at the names, but I also look at location and time frames. Because yes. if I find somebody's in the same county my ancestors have been for a while, and I don't recognize the name, then start digging into the county and seeing are there any records that, uh, you know, somebody witnessed somebody's deed or whatever. And uh, that can help. 
um, to tell you the truth, you know how I've found some of my uh, connections and common ancestors is because people uploaded their GEDCOMs to Family Tree DNA. And I went through every one of those GEDCOMs looking at them and comparing my lineage with theirs. And I got about six or eight, I can't remember right now, six or eight people that I could find a common ancestor. And part yes. of that is because I have my ancestry wide and deep. So I recognize mm-hmm. the people. So anything you can do to uh, enhance what genealogy you know, it's going to be helpful. Right. Now, what about those people? And you, you mentioned uh, locations. Uh, yes. Suppose they want to, to start a locality, the DNA project. How would they do that and with what company? Okay, first of all, I think I need to define locality because I'm seeing that as two ways. One, that could mean a group of people who want to establish a DNA interest group, and maybe for a society or maybe just because they work on their genealogy. Um, That whole bunch of ideas for topics and how to do that is also in my book. Or if you mean um, establishing a locality project, you know, let's say I want a DNA project that deals with, um, I don't know, Henry County, Missouri, Mm -hmm. Uh, then what you do, Family Tree DNA is the only one who has projects. Okay. With with online websites. If you want your own project outside of Family Tree DNA, then you have to have your own website and import things into it. But um, Family Tree DNA, you just email them with your purpose. Why are you wanting to do this? What are your goals? And um, they will write back to you and say, yes, you may have that project or you may not. The reason they would... Um, decline would be it uh, already covers some, you know, it's the same area that's being covered or it's the same surname that's being covered. But usually they're pretty flexible. Is I don't know which question, which way yes. that went. Okay. Yes, well, that, that answered the question. So that if the testers are individuals who have tested and it has not been with family tree DNA, and they want to form a, a group, um, a locality group, then it would be up to them to get the people in their community to test and for them to manage it on Right, their own. and they create their own website. And there's a lot of free websites and, out there. And even people who have projects on Family Tree DNA, because the, uh, Bennett Greenspan calls it a cookie-cutter system, which it is. Um, you know, it's one set of pages fits everybody. Um, there are people who actually link from Family Tree DNA to their own personal website and then have changed things uh, the way they want them and created them the way they want. So either way. Either way. Okay, now uh, we're we're getting close to the end. I'm looking right now to see if there are any other questions from the chatters, and I just want you to go over what tools and resources exist beyond the testing companies to get more out of your DNA results? But even well, to learn more. Yeah, oh, goodness, there is a whole list. I ha- And I do have um, various blogs listed and other things in my book as well. But briefly, um, if you, t- I do want to point this out because 
if you tested a 23andMe or Ancestry and you have not uh, transferred, it, it really means copied, but they use the term transfer, your results to Family Tree DNA, you need to do so because you'll be in either two or three large databases. So you're going to get different matches. And uh, Family Tree DNA is the only company that will accept transfers. And it's reasonable at $69 or wait for a sale. Um, but and you're speaking to, of autosomal results. Yes, autosomal. Yes. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because 23andMe, uh, is the only, they only do autosomal. So if you did autosomal, you want to be in all three of those databases if you can afford it or at least um, two of the three if you can. But if you've tested a family tree DNA, you cannot transfer back to the others. They just don't accept that. Um, however, for the Y and the Mito, uh, Chondria, there is Y search and Mito search. And those mm-hmm. are affiliated with Family Tree DNA. There's also a Y base, and you could transfer the data there. Any company, any company you test with, you can put in Y search and Mito search. If you tested with Family Tree DNA, it's just a click of the button, and it's already transferred. And you create a password and all. If it's a, another company, then you have to hand put them in. You have to hand put the results in. There's also GEDmatch, which accepts data from any of the three companies. Again, that's all autosomal. And there you can compare your segments with others who have voluntarily updated their results. Now, and this is the only way, as I would said before, for you to see the segments for Ancestry DNA because they do not have a chromosome browser, even though there have been many of us who have asked that they do that. Um, As far as... Oh, sites. There's my blog. There is um, C.C. Moore's blog um, and Blaine Bedinger's blog and Roberta Estes's blog and Judy uh, Russell's blog. Those are some of the top blogs. Um, and, and there's many, many more. Uh, they go around teaching you a great deal of information uh, and keep you up to date as to what's happening. And, oh, let's see, there's all kinds of websites. Each of the companies have their own um, frequently asked questions, and that can be helpful. Just Google whatever you need to find out. There will be anywhere from... um, information for the new person to the actual geneticist. Um, Let's see there, if I can find it quickly, there was another lady um, who is really good. I can't remember the name right now. But the International Society of Genetic Genealogists has a wiki that is awesome. They they have a lot of information there. They compare the major companies as far as their testing um, and uh, just so much information, um, glossaries, information on each of the tests. And that can be found just by um, your search engine and doing www.isogg.org forward slash wiki. So, again, there it's all over the net. <laughs> you can find okay. so much. Okay. Well, that is wonderful. Well, do you have any parting words of wisdom to the chatters? Well, 
um, I, I would just stress that you learn the subject well. And if you haven't tested, please learn it before you test so you won't be disappointed and to determine what your goals are for testing. When people write me, they'll say, which test should I take? And I always turn around and say, what's your goal? Why do you want to test? And then I can tell you the correct test to take. So if you figure out why you want to test, what it is you want to know, and then choose the test correctly, you shouldn't have any, any concerns. But, um, I, you know, the future of DNA is just uh, moving rapidly. And there, it, at this point, it's just our imagination that will um, determine what will and will not happen. So people from in my position, uh, we call them citizen scientists, are pushing yes. the companies forward. And um, we've made great strides. Um, there are companies who will listen to you and uh, implement the ideas you have, and we see that in Family Tree DNA. Um, so become involved, become educated about it, and um, have fun. Just have fun. Yes, and it is something to have fun. You can also become very much addicted to it. <laughs> Not oh, yes. to mention like the genealogy you know. part, but <laughs> even once you get into the DNA, uh, oh, it can yeah. certainly become addicting. So how can individuals uh, obtain a copy of your book? Well, it is available online in uh, softcover or an ebook uh, through Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, as well as Author House, who is the publisher. The, um, you also can go to any bookstore and request that it be ordered because it is a print-on-demand book. And even though some of these companies keep some in supply, your local um, brick-and-mortar bookstore can get it just by ordering. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us your knowledge of genetic genealogy. And I hope that those who order the book will use that book and listen to this show again to compare some of the wonderful uh, advice that you have given to us that they can now see it in writing so that they have the audio and they also have the video. Uh, So thank you so, so very much. Well, Well, please join me. Okay, well, please join me on Thursday, February the 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern to hear genealogy expert John F. Baker, Jr., Now, John has lived his entire life just a few miles from a plantation called the Washington Plantation. And this particular town was populated by hundreds of descendants of his slaves. Now, he has a book called The Washingtons of Washington Plantation. And he's going to share the whole family's journey to freedom. This is a story that you want to hear about. This was a plantation that was founded in 1796 by Joseph Washington, who's a distant cousin of President Washington. And John interviewed dozens of individuals, ranging in age from 80 to 100 years, to collect their oral histories. And he studied more than 11,000 documents to trace the ancestors of this plantation. So please join me next Thursday to hear John F. Baker, Jr.
So I want everyone to have a good day, and thank you, Emily Alessino, for sharing information that we need to know and understand about genetic genealogy. And please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, research at the National Archives, family stories. I mean, just just look at it. And also examine your DNA. Perhaps this may provide you with the clues that you're looking for. Remember to listen to the African Roots podcast on Friday and also Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on tomorrow and Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander. Have a great day. Bye-bye.